0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. As our population grows and our climate changes, feeding the planet is going to become more difficult. Now, as our climate is changing, knowing things like droughts ahead of time would be incredibly useful for farmers, as is knowing what crops to plant to get the best yields and how to breed better crops that are longer lasting, yield more and are better suited to their changing environments without needing lots of pesticides. This week we look at the science of farming. Feeding a planet is a difficult task. You've got to get enough food to feed an ever-growing population. You need to find enough resources to water that food stock as it grows and prepare it. And then you need to get it out to the populations that need to eat it. Managing global food supply and demand is a tricky process and one huge logistical challenge. And when you think about all the different types of foods that people eat, when you break it down, really, rice, wheat and maize are pretty much the world's leading food crops. Together, they supply pretty much more than 42% of all calories consumed by the entire human population. Now, different regions prefer different base crops, and that has a combination to do with what grows well in those environments, what products those markets have access to, as well as just cultural traditions. Now, human consumption, for example, in 2009 accounted for basically for 78% of all rice produced. Roughly 64% of all wheat produced and 14% of all maize, corn produced. And basically, these crops are what keep the world ticking over. So this week we're gonna look at some stories about how science can help improve the robustness and yields of all of these crops in different regions across the world. How we can improve the yields of rice in South America, how we can improve the yields of corn and maize in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as looking at how we can turn to out of this world technology to get a better grasp on our crops. Corn is serious business, at least particularly in some regions like the United States, which produce over a third of all of the world's corn. Corn maize has some interesting uses. It can be used for food, but more importantly, it's often used as a feedstock. That's pretty much what more than a third of all maize or corn production gets used for, feed for other animals. And that's what makes it an incredibly useful crop because not only can it feed be used to make Other additives for food, such as sweeteners, could be used to feed cattle, could also be used to produce fuel. And so that's why out of the thousand million metric tons of corn produced each year, countries are reliant on this crop to basically help subsidize and push along not only the country's stomachs, economies, but also their farms and even their fuel now, if you look at it by white, for example, the world produces more corn than any other cereal crop. Farmers growing corn face a lot of challenges. It's not easy because there's things like drought, disease and pests that can really wreck your entire crop. Then in a place like sub-Saharan Africa, almost 20 up to in a bad year, 80% of corn yields may be lost just because of a semi-parasitic plant named striga. When striga gets into an area, it spreads across and damages a farm, basically growing through like an invasive weed and as its semi-parasitic starts to suck out from the host or the nearby plants, that corn, and that can lose, sometimes in worse conditions, their entire crop. In other cases, it just basically ruins the yield of your crop, so now it's not getting you very much despite all your efforts. Now, researchers from Southern Africa have identified several varieties of corn that could help build resistance or be at least more tolerant to striga. And that would make a huge impact on corn production in the region, mostly because it means then you don't need to be supplying expensive chemicals uh, across a very large region of the world. You also don't need specialised equipment, and it's also very cheap and efficient to deliver. Basically, by changing out the seed stock that farmers are planting, you can have a massive impact on people's lives. And that has helped in the past when we've wanted to really help people boost food production, avoid famines, is when we can boost in a simple and effective way the resilience of crops. Now, a lot of this work was done out of the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Centre, which is based in Harare in Zimbabwe. Now, one of the problems with strega is that it impacts soil that has poor fertility, because the seeds can basically hang around for more than 15 years. And that's really, really damaging, because even if you buy a farm or pick up an abandoned farm that had been left behind by some other farmers after their crops failed, you you may not know what you're getting into. It could be having striga seeds lurking underneath the ground. That means you don't know, even if you could afford to dose the entire place very well with chemical fertilizers, you may not able to know if you need to do that or not. Now having a variety of corn that would be resistant to Striga would be immensely great, but you also need to boost the resilience of it. And the target here is basically to rely on boosting the essential amino acids found in corn. Now one of the challenges with using corn in particular, as a base food stock for people, is that it, as it, since it lacks these essential amino acids, it impairs growth and development. It also weakens the immune system, which if you're a struggling farmer in sub-Saharan Africa or anywhere in the world, that's not good news, especially if you're using that crop for subsistence farming, i.e. farming for survival. So if we could find a way to boost that crop then that and improve its resilience, then it would be a two-for-one win. So Setti Miller and his colleagues from the Research Centre in Harare have been looking at ways to boost and create a high-protein variety of corn. Now, normally people would rely on other sources of protein, such as eggs, meat, and dairy products, but if you're relying on corn as your base prop, if you can boost the protein level of it, you'll have a huge benefit for the population. And the other side effect is it increases its resilience to the Strigan infectious parasitic plant. Now, when researchers tested eight high-protein varieties and four regular varieties of corn or maize, they found that, f- that out of the total number of testing, four of those varieties of high-protein corn also showed very, very high levels of Striga tolerance, as well as high yields. If you think about it another way, it shows that corn, when, emplo- when developed and bred correctly, can be a superfood that not only gives you a food-based crop protein boost to provide protein that you would have to get from otherwise difficult sources and we can make it more resilient so you can feed more people and not worry so much about your crops failing and get more yield and it's this kind of food research and food security that we need to help tackle the global need for food this is some great research being done out of harare in zimbabwe from the international maize and wheat improvement center Now, another incredibly important, and just by a pure volume sense, one of the world's most populous crop is, of course, rice. And when you think of rice and production and consumption, immediately Asia springs to mind. And that's true. Asia is a hub of rice growing. The environment, particularly around the tropical regions, make it ideal for growing rice, given the high water contents and swampy conditions, which is great for growing rice. But outside of Asia... No other country produces anywhere near the amount of rice as Brazil. It's the ninth largest rice producer in the world, and that's quite surprising. It's yielding about 15 million tonnes of rice a year. That's a multi-billion dollar industry that employs hundreds of thousands of people directly, indirectly, as well as gives them a valuable food staple source. Now, all that considered, how can you make rice more sustainable and better for the farmers, the industry, and the consumers. So a new study explores how the Brazilian Agricultural Research Corporation, Epambara, has made progress over the last 45 years working with breeders, growers, farmers, and corporations to improve the yields and get a better sustainable product. Now, over the last 45 years that the Embrapa breeding program has been working They've had a quiet miracle, not as impressive as the tremendous results that was had in India with rice production through the 1900s, which is basically why India's managed to sustain its 1 billion people population. And Pampere in Brazil has done well, not Indian levels well, but pretty great. And each year they've managed to boost the yield of their rice by around 0.62 to 0.73%. That's basically thousands of pounds of extra rice produced each year for farmers. And how they've managed to achieve this is through some big step changes that have occurred in different eras. One of the ones that they've been looking at really importantly, though, is the relationship between plant height and time to flowering. Now, when it comes to most crops, you'd like to think about how if a plant has a certain height, it means it's grown well. And maybe some people would use that for an indicator for yield. But interestingly enough, what they found for rice is that shorter plant height actually can result in increasing yields. The shorter plants allow the rice to develop in better ways. And basically, through the 1970s, though the average height of the rice plant dropped from about 38 inches all the way down to 32, they were doubling the yield of the rice. Another key criteria is, trying to breed in more early flowering varieties. That's important because these ones that flower early actually need less water and other resources like fertilizer. They're also more flexible on when you can plant and harvest them. According to the study, flowering time was reduced by about nine days over the 45 year period. Now that doesn't seem like a lot, but in plant crop cycle generation, that's a pretty impressive result. Now, it takes 97 days for just half of a rice crop to flower in 1972. And now, today, they can do that in about 88 days. What that means is you get more harvests a year, and you can have more flexibility when you plant it. The more times you can harvest, the more rice you can yield from your farm, and the more you can produce. Now, another key area of the study, and this long-term study that was done over 45 years, is that you can actually get better results, or better yields, in an unconventional way. Normally, you'd think that if you let a plant mature in the ground for longer, you get a better yield out of it, has more time to grow and develop. But they found that, actually, if they develop varieties that yield and mature in just 118 days, they're actually a lot more productive than ones that yield over a slower 130-day process. They also use water, more efficiently. And that's incredibly important when you think about how much of the 70% of rice grown in Brazil is irrigated, in particular in areas like the Rio Grande do Sul. And that's very important when it comes to sustainability. Well, if you can get rice that uses less water, is more yield from a less growing time, and with it grows less amounts, short height crops, then what you end up with is a much more sustainable crop as well. And that's very, very important. It makes it more robust against things like drought, which will become more common in a changing climate. Now, plant breeding is a long-term process, and that's why this study over 45 years can show you just how much impact you can have from small tweaks here and there. Shaving off one or two days doesn't seem that impressive, but in terms of agricultural output and feeding a planet, these kind of savings are very, very important. Now, this study published in the American Society of Agronomy, done out of Brazil, Agriculture Research Corporation, EPAMBRA. It just goes to show the benefits that we can have for our environment as well as for our planet by smarter plant breeding. As our climate changes, it's going to become more and more important to understand when and where droughts are going to happen, because they're going to be more frequent. And that means for our farmers, it becomes essential to understand what is going on in the climate around them, whether that be the atmospheric conditions, storms that could damage the crops, or even the amount of water in the soil. Yes, of course, rainfall is important as well, but knowing how wet and dense the soil is is important for knowing when to plant your crops and if a drought is on the way. And as our climate changes, we need to turn to climate scientists to get a better understanding of this. And where better to turn than to NASA, who have some of the world's experts in climate science. And NASA's teamed up with the US Department of Agriculture. For the first time, use satellites dedicated to monitoring the water content of soil across the world. And they're using this to create a service that they call Crop Explorer. Now, that's part of the USDA's Forest Agricultural Service website, which gives reports on regional droughts, floods and crop forecast. And it is basically a treasure trove of data for farmers, as well as climate scientists, because it has things like agricultural growing conditions across the globe, including measuring like soil temperature, moisture, precipitation, vegetation health, and more. And if you're trying to monitor and forecast and understand what's out there and going on in the world today, this is an essential resource, not just in the United States, but globally. And by launching this new satellite, which is part of the Soil Moisture Active Passive Mission, or SMAP, they actually get really good information globally on soil moisture levels, and that's incredibly important if you're a farmer deciding when and what crop to plant. Now this information from SMAP is basically updated every three days, and that's pretty good because if there's a short dry period early in the season, it might not have a big impact on your crop yield, but if there's a big, long dry spell, right in the middle of when the grain should be forming, the crop may not recover. If that's kind of the forecast that you have ahead of you, then maybe you wanna reconsider the type of crop you plant or maybe you want to reconsider when you harvest. And that kind of information is what farmers are doing daily in their calculations inside their heads and inside their systems to decide how to get the most out of their crops. As we try to feed an ever-growing planet population, this is incredibly important because it's only gonna get tougher. And that's why the NASA SMAP mission, as well as soil moisture information from the ESA's European Space Agency, Soil Moisture and Ocean Salinity mission, is also being integrated into services like the USDA. They get cross shared with NGOs and other non-profit groups and even places like Google Earth. And this big part of the toolbox is what's essential for modern farming because modern farmers rely a lot on climate information and they're closely aligned with the needs of climate scientists. So this is a great mission being done by NASA, SMAP, and information that's available not just for farmers in the United States, but across the world, so they can get a better understanding of what conditions await them in this ever-changing climate. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Whether it be more resistant and resilient corn to better growing practices for Brazilian rice, we found out about some new technologies like NASA's SMAP mission to help farmers get an edge against climate change. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Anatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.